You're listening to the Foundation Podcast. This is The Chase, bringing you everything you need to know about policies affecting you, your family, and your community. I'm Andrew Brown. And I'm James Quintero. Thank you for listening to The Chase. My name is Andrew Brown, here with James Quintero. James, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well, considering where I was last week as compared to this week. It's nice and warm outside today. I don't know if you've taken a walk yet, but it's, it's what I love about Texas. It can be the surface of Hoth one day, and then we're drinking margaritas <laughs> on the patio the next. Definitely my kind of weather. If anything, I learned last week that I would do very, very poorly in the Northeast. Oh my gosh, yeah. I've lived in D.C. for a while, and utter nightmare in the wintertime. But... We're going to talk a little bit about the snow because, well, everybody's talking about the snow right now, but we want to take a little bit of a different angle. You know, the what happened, who's to blame, all of that, there's plenty of room for that. But one of the things that really stood out to me as we were living through the blizzard, for lack of a better term, that hit us last week was when the power grid shut down, when government failed. Texans rose to the challenge, and people who needed help got it from their neighbors and their communities. And that, to me, was a beautiful thing. And it happened in big and small ways all over the state. You know, small ways our family had another family from church come in and stay with us for the whole week. We had lived a little bit of your life. We had four kids all under the age of three in the house and two dogs. You know, it was a lot, but it was a really hopeful in a weird way, it was a time of bonding uh, where you just welcome people into your home. I don't know if you all had similar experiences around your neck of the woods. Uh, we, we actually did. We took in uh, my brother-in-law and his family, uh, along with my mother-in-law and our big giant family. And so at one point, there were uh, more people in, in my household than I could actually count on my fingers and toes. But it all went well because, again, to your point, it, got, it gets back to this uh, basic... Uh, element of Texans helping Texans, right? When when government fails, then communities and individuals step up to fill the gap. And that's what we saw happen across the state. It was actually inspirational in a lot of ways. Despite the human tragedy and despite everything uh, negative that happened, there were some positive elements to come out of last week. Yeah, and that's really what we want to be focusing on, that is not to minimize the suffering that so many Texans are still enduring as they try to recover, but that's been all over the news. We want to talk about some of the hopeful stories and uh, uplifting stories that we saw. One thing that stood out to me in Leander, Texas, HEB, which I think is the National Grocery Store of Texas, actually gave away groceries for free to shoppers who were in line when their power went down. Sales clerks just told people, take what you've got, go, stay safe. You know, that to me is company that is near and dear to many Texans hearts doing what they do best and taking care of their communities. Well, that's truly remarkable. And, and you know, another case that I found, Michael Huff, who is a, a, a Texas Longhorn alum and former NFL safety, last played for the Broncos, uh, did something really incredible. He said, you know what, if you're in Austin and need a hot meal and could safely make it to Don Juan Taco, I've paid for a thousand tacos in advance. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, what an incredible gesture there. Yeah, that's just generosity. Um, crowdsourcing, the social media connectedness that we all have actually paid off in a huge way 
There was a student at the University of Texas named Sam Miles, and you can read this story in the Texas Tribune. Uh, Sam started a basic Google Doc as a way to provide warm breakfast to other students on campus. Well, this small little localized Google Doc started growing, and it grew to the point where they were paying for hotel rooms, cooking meals for folks, connecting people throughout the city of Austin with students who had space and power in their apartments. And so students are taking complete strangers in off the street and giving them a warm place to stay. And according to the article, that this one group of students raised $12,000 and helped hundreds of people during the storm just through this Google Doc that one student at UT created. Wow. <laughs> that, way to go, Sam Miles. That's a huge, huge contribution. Uh, a, truly a shining example. Another uh, a great thing I saw last week, our own uh, uh, general counsel, Rob Henneke, partnered with the new Austin City Council member, Mackenzie Kelly, to get out there and pass out waters to those in need. So, uh, you know, uh, generosity uh, was, uh, was, was showing itself well here at the foundation as well, uh, both with Rob's example as well as uh, we had a number of other employees internally who stepped up to the plate and, and met the need that they saw in their community. And it's just that, where's that need? Let's figure out how we can help and how we can solve a problem for our neighbors. The last one that I wanted to point out is breweries and distilleries gave away free water while we're on the subject of water. And between manufacturing hand sanitizer during the height of COVID and now this, the booze industry is really providing some incredible value to Texans during times of crisis and in ways that you wouldn't think they would. Um, just all that drinking water that was just, it almost seemed immediately available as soon as the city shut down the water here in Austin. You know, I didn't think I could think more highly of breweries and distilleries, but yet here we are. They keep raising the bar. <laughs> well, for those of you listening in, I know that many of you probably had your own experiences. We want to hear about them. Let us know, send emails, send comments. Uh, tell us about acts of common heroism that you saw in your local community during the blizzard last week transitioning now because even though the state shut down for a week life does not stop we are back up and running work continues at the capitol james i know that you've got some pretty big things on your plate this week uh, one in particular about some radio ads right so the public policy world is still moving forward at lightning speed uh, despite the absence of state lawmakers by and large um, we have uh, a lot of things that are moving behind the scenes. And uh, for, for our listeners, one of the things that we learned right before Snowpocalypse was that a great majority of Texans opposed the practice of using tax dollars to fund lobbyists. Uh, in fact, according to our most recent polling, nine out of 10 Texans oppose spending public money on private lobbyists. No surprise there. Uh, tax dollars should go to police and potholes, not to well-heeled Austin lobbyists. And so using that information, what we did is we thought to ourselves, you know what, we ought to tell the world that not only what we found uh, is in accordance with mo what most people believe, but also that we have some great ideas to solve the problem too. And so uh, uh, earlier this week, we launched a statewide radio campaign uh, funded by a six-figure donation. We're taking our message statewide to all of the major metropolitan areas with the exception of maybe one or two, 
like Austin, where unfortunately, uh, even even here, there are still some holdouts against the practice. But uh, we're we're taking our message of good government on the road and uh, hoping to hear some some great feedback from the people uh, in the Lone Star State. So those ads already running, or are they coming up soon? Those ads launched yesterday, and uh, so we're looking forward to to hearing what people have to say in response. Are we right or are we wrong that local government should use taxpayer money to fund lobbyists? And uh, if people wanted to respond to that question or to those ads, how could they do that? Well, I, I think you should send all of the angry emails to abrown at texaspolicy.com. <laughs> send all of the really nice stuff to Jay Quintero at texaspolicy.com, and we'll meet in the middle and uh, tell each other what we found. I'm going to come down to your office and just, <laughs> I can't believe you just did that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I did it for the laughs, my friend, but... In all seriousness, this is probably one of the top three issues that the legislature faces over the next 90 days, of course. Uh, dealing with the uh, the energy crisis that happened last week is probably number one on everybody's list. But a very close number two is this issue of taxpayer-funded lobbying because it has an effect on virtually every other issue. Uh, when you look at, uh, at, be it taxes, spending, debt, Local governments have launched and flooded the Capitol with these taxpayer-funded lobbyists to influence lawmakers on all of their pet projects. And so if we can take care of this one particular issue, it's going to open up a number of, of huge opportunities for the conservative movement to advance, I think, some really strong policies in the future. And advocating for the needs of taxpayers, which the shocking thing to me still about this is the local governments and their lobbyists are not down there lobbying for my interest as a taxpayer. Yeah, yeah believe it believe it or not. Doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> governments are using our money to lobby for their own interest, not the public's interest. And so, um, you know, it's an issue that I look forward to engaging on again within the next 90 days. I think we have a really small window of opportunity but uh, if we can get it across the finish line, again, it's going to have a huge effect on virtually every other issue. Now, that, that said, I know that taxpayer-funded lobbying is not the only thing that uh, is on our radar lately. What else is happening in the Government for the People campaign world? Well, we're starting to see some movement on child welfare issues. The Senate Finance Committee is meeting this Friday to take up Article 2, which is Next to education, one of the biggest parts of the state budget in terms of dollars spent. And within Article 2 is the Department of Family and Protective Services, our foster care system. On Monday, Tuesday of next week, the House Article 2 subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee is also meeting to discuss these issues. I'll be providing testimony in front of both committees around the move to reform the state's foster care system to make it more responsive to the needs of the most vulnerable children. Several years ago, the state responded to, quite frankly, a crisis in our foster care system where children were just being treated horribly. Um, the federal judge in a lawsuit that was filed over the poor conditions of our foster care system said that kids in the Texas foster care system almost uniformly leave worse off than they were when they entered the system. And so in response to that lawsuit, the legislature got about reforming the system. In 2017, I believe it was, they passed uh, community-based care, which essentially takes the foster care system, 
and gives it to the local communities. It gives local communities greater responsibility for caring for the most vulnerable in their own neighborhoods. Uh, decentralized the foster care system. And we've already seen incredible results from that. We're seeing improvement in outcomes for the kids when these local community entities, nonprofits, churches, other uh, benefit societies are coming together to provide this care. Now that program is being rolled out slowly across the state. It's active in four regions where it's already outperforming the old system. Um, it's coming to another four regions based on what the department has requested in their next round of funding uh, for the upcoming biennium. And we are fully in support of the continued expansion of that community-based models because just like what we were talking about at the top of this show where Texans came together to help Texans in their times of crisis and did it more effectively than government, that same principle applies to the foster care system. So the more Texans can help struggling families in their communities, the more Texans can help vulnerable children in their communities, the better life is going to be for those folks who are in need of help. Uh, so we will be uh, providing testimony and working on that expansion um, of the community-based model. The other piece that's at play here is the federal government has changed the way that it provides funds to states to run their child welfare systems. Prior to 2018, you could only use federal money provided through Title IV-E of the Social Security Act to care for children who are already in foster care. In 2018, a bill was passed called the Family First Prevention Services Act that changed that and says, no, states, you can now use that money to prevent kids from entering foster care. That is a huge cultural change because we know that the moment a child is separated from their family and placed in the foster care system, even in circumstances where we think that that is a necessary thing that needs to happen, that is harmful and traumatic for that child. And so by investing in prevention and family strengthening, we can hopefully reduce the number of kids who are separated from their families and reduce the number of kids who are subjected to dangerous situations. Now that flexibility is going to require the state to be very careful with how we implement it. And we want to make sure that as we move towards that implementation deadline of October of this year, that those prevention efforts are coordinated with the reforms that are already working in Texas through the community-based foster care model and really just make sure that those things are moving on the same track and helping each other out so that we can get to a point where, quite frankly, I think Texas's foster care system could be a model for the rest of the nation, but it's going to take commitment. It's going to take some courage on the part of the legislature. So let me ask you this, and this is a silly layman question, but, but maybe you can help me understand this. If we have a model, the community-based care model, that seems to be succeeding at, a, at, the, at its mission, but it's being rolled out slowly, what's the rationale there for, for not kind of going whole hog and, and moving forward with the, with the change? Right. Well, some of that rationale is just when you're doing a wholesale restructuring of a system, it's complicated and it takes time. Um, we're learning a lot from the regions that have already rolled out. You know, anytime you have a plan, as you start implementing that plan, you realize, oh, there's things that we could do differently or you learn those lessons. So that's partially the reason behind this rollout. There's another reason behind this rollout is you have a department that has had complete control over the foster care system for so long that is also presiding over its own reduction in responsibilities. So as more responsibilities go out to local communities, 
the power and the responsibility within the centralized child welfare bureaucracy is diminished. And there's some conflict involved in that. Um, and so what we're trying to do is break through those issues and make sure that the most effective way of taking care of kids, which is through the local communities, is the future of Texas. And the governor has said it to his great credit is community-based care is the future of foster care in Texas. And we're in support of that fulsome rollout. You know, I'd love to see it statewide by 2025. How excellent. So, so let me, let me ask you this. Are you optimistic about some of the good government changes that we think we might see this session, or does it look like uh, some of those things might evade us? You know, I'm optimistic on the child welfare front, um, even with COVID, even with uh, the, snow, the snowstorm from last week, we knew that there are things that have to get done in child welfare because, like I said, we have this implementation deadline for a federal law of October 2021, so we have to make decisions this session on child welfare. We've also got this ongoing federal lawsuit hanging over us, moving to this community-based model and doing the reforms that we started out doing in 2017 is the quickest way to get out from under that lawsuit and the micromanagement of the court. And just to reiterate this uh, point for our audience, you're going to be testifying later this week and early next week. Do we know just quite when yet? I'm not sure what time yet. Senate finance is going to be on Friday. And then early next week, House Appropriations Subcommittee on Article 2. It looks like they're taking up DFPS on Tuesday the 2nd. Well, best of luck to you, my friend. This is a, a, a very worthy issue. Thank you very much. Any final thoughts from you before we wrap up? No, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, slowly but surely getting back to quote-unquote normal life, whatever that means in 2021. It's never uh, normal during session, let's be <laughs> honest. Uh, yes, and, and looking forward, uh, you know, this is probably the first of many sessions, so <laughs> who knows when it'll get back to normal. Special sessions. <laughs> so, the days that we can't go on vacation. Even still, I'm excited to see the sun and no snow on the ground, and I look forward to a really wonderful spring. Well, we hope you all are faring well and recovering. Uh, please know that our thoughts and prayers are with you from the foundation and have a great week.